Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. We're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Oklahoma City set aside $300,000 in its annual budget to create a new response to mental health crises. Whitney Bryan covers mental health for Oklahoma Watch and joins us now. Whitney, what's the money for? Well, this money is part of the city's general fund, and it's dedicated to reinventing the city's response to people in mental health crisis. So there are two uh, task forces in Oklahoma City that are charged with deciding what these new responses should look like. Uh, There's the Mayor's Law Enforcement Policy Task Force and the Community Policing Working Group. Uh, These include city officials, activists, religious leaders, current and former law enforcement, and counselors. Um, And both of these were born out of concerns about local policing and during the protests spurred by uh, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, So this money is going to fund a plan based on the recommendations of those two groups. So what... What's a mental health crisis response? What's a mental health call, right? How are those handled now? Well, right now, police are responding to all of these calls. So these calls could be about someone who's uh, talking to themselves on the street or walking in the middle of a busy road. Um, It could be someone who's using drugs or who is suicidal, Uh, maybe someone who's hallucinating, Or it could be something like a domestic violence call. And a lot of times officers aren't aware that it's a mental health call until they're on the scene. That's especially relevant in cases like domestic violence calls uh, when they might go to the call expecting, you know, an altercation between a husband and a wife, for instance, but find out when they get to the scene that uh, mental health is part of that equation. So Oklahoma City Police respond to more than 20,000 of those calls every single year. Um, and police can make an arrest uh, on scene if someone is actually breaking the law. Um, They can detain the person and take them for an assessment at a local hospital if they think they need treatment. Or in a lot of cases, uh, they do nothing. You know, they they show up, they decide that the person in crisis is not a safety risk to themselves or to others, and they leave. And so then the person is left to deal with that crisis on their own. Well, the city is prepared to spend $300,000 to change that system. What's wrong with doing it the way you just described? Well, there are a few problems that come up when I talk to police, uh, mental health clinicians, people with mental illness, um, and their families. First of all, uh, most police receive very little training in mental health. So, uh, for instance, in Oklahoma City, cadets receive 16 hours at the academy out of a total of 1,100 hours of training that's related to mental health. So it's a, a very small slice of the pie. Um, Another reason is that these calls can turn deadly. Um, We saw in December that Benny Edwards, he was a uh, who is a well-known Oklahoma City man um, who had mental illness. He was killed by Oklahoma City police um, in a parking lot during an altercation. And then in May, we also saw an officer shoot uh, a man named Daniel Hobbs after he told the officer that he had a mental illness. And these are just a couple of recent examples that we've seen. 
Another problem that arises with police response is that um, it contributes to the stigma around mental health. So um, police officers arrive in uniform with guns and handcuffs on their hips, and that can increase the anxiety and tension that's felt by someone who has a mental illness. And it also adds to the stigma that people who are suffering from mental health issues are dangerous criminals when that is not always the case. So uh, if, if that's going to change, what would a new program look like? Well, we don't know what the new program is going to look like yet, but there are a few models that are being discussed. So I spoke with Josh Higginbotham. Uh, he's part of one of those task force I mentioned earlier, and he's been doing some research on programs around the country um, that he says he would like to combine to create a new model in Oklahoma City. Uh, one of those is called the Denver Star Program, and another is Cahoots out of Oregon. Those programs do not involve police, so those would be clinicians and paramedics uh, who are responding to nonviolent mental health crises. On the other hand, I also spoke to, to Lieutenant Jason Knight with the Oklahoma City Police Department. He oversees their mental health unit, and he said that they're in discussions with NorthCare, which is a mental health treatment provider, to develop a program that would include police officers responding with clinicians. Is there a, is there a timeline for implementing a new program? So there's not currently a timeline, um, and we don't know which program, uh, whether either of those programs or maybe both of those programs would be implemented. But I think the goal for both the police department and the task force folks I've spoken to seems to be next summer. So I think we can look towards maybe June or July to start seeing some implementation of at least a pilot program. Well, thanks, Whitney. Listeners can read all of Whitney Bryan's mental health coverage at OklahomaWatch.org. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch and is reporting on Governor Stitt's recent trip to Mexico. Lionel, what was the governor's trip to Mexico all about? Yeah, so the governor was accompanied to Mexico by Secretary of Commerce and Workforce Development Scott Mueller. Uh, and according to a November 1st press release, the trip was focused on building diplomatic and economic partnerships, um, though a lot of the, the nitty-gritty details are still unclear. Uh, we do know that uh, Governor Kevin Stitt met with U.S. Embassy Deputy Chief Stephanie uh, Siptak-Ramna and leaders of the Mexican Secretariat of Foreign Affairs to discuss the prospects of opening a Mexican consulate in Oklahoma, um, which is something the Mexican and U.S. governments work out on, on the federal level uh, for the most part. The, the governor um, expressed Oklahoma support for the building of a new consulate in our state and encouraged the U.S. State Department to expedite any necessary approvals for that. Uh, so... Uh, the governor's role in that trip is mostly diplomatic, uh, to build a relationship and to uh, make face and, and be there present uh, with, the, with Mexican government officials. Um, though, they also met with energy leaders in Mexico City and uh, officials at uh, Tecnológico de Monterrey, which is a, a prominent private university in, in Mexico, um, based out of Monterrey, uh, with multiple cam campuses across the country. So what, what exactly is a consulate and and what does it do yeah so a consulate is a government building that a country has on foreign soil and it enables the citizens of that country to renew things like passports identification cards birth certificates uh, and other legal documents while they're abroad uh, they also help facilitate larger scope diplomatic and economic activity between two countries or in our case uh, two countries and a state 
Got it. Why hasn't there been a consulate built in Oklahoma before now? Uh, I, I don't actually know. Uh, what I do know is that the decision to build a consulate is made first by the country trying to build it. Uh, so Mexico has to have an incentive um, or a reason, right? Something that they see potential in Oklahoma. They see a need for a consulate. Um, likely the growing population, Hispanic and Mexican population in the state. Um, but once a country decides to do that, all subsequent efforts are a collaboration between uh, governments to figure out the logistics, state governments and federal governments, the U.S. and Mexico in this case. Do you happen to know where the uh, next closest Mexican consulate is? Yeah, so the next closest one is in Dallas, which is about three hours, depending on how fast you drive. Uh, and uh, the one after that is six hours away in Arkansas, in Little Rock. Finally, Lionel, what would a consulate mean for Mexican nationals living in Oklahoma, and what would it mean for the larger Latino community here? Safety from accidental deportation, for one. Uh, like, I, like I just mentioned, the nearest Mexican consulates are in Dallas, Texas, and Little Rock, Arkansas. And so for anyone trying to renew visas, ID cards, passports, and other identification and immigration documents, that means a three- to six-hour drive to the nearest consulate. And um, for someone who has expired documents or no documents at all, I'm thinking particularly of dreamers who came here as children and don't have Mexican documents or American documents, um, they run a, a pretty high risk of, of being deported and not having a place to go or going to a place they don't recognize. Um, for people here in Oklahoma physically uh, and Mexican Oklahomans, uh, Latino Oklahomans, uh, there's a financial and economic stimulation for, for that community. Uh, a consulate means less long road trips, uh, less risky road trips, and easier connections among entrepreneurs from Oklahoma and Mexico. Got it. Well, thank you, Lionel. You can read all of Lionel Ramos's coverage on race and equity issues at OklahomaWatch.org. Trevor Brown covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch and has been reporting extensively on redistricting. Trevor, there was a lot of debate about Oklahoma's congressional redistricting plan, but there wasn't that much for the legislative plans. Why was it? Yeah, so with the congressional maps, the big issue with congressional Congressional District 5, which was a competitive district that they moved to more of a Republican-dominated um, district. And the legislature is a bit different of a beast because right now 80% of the state house and senate is controlled by Republicans. Um, so in the new map, some districts are being moved around becoming more Republican, some are more Democrats. Um, but basically it was a wash. I ran some of the numbers and roughly the same number of districts lean Republican as they did before. So not, neither party is really getting too much of an advantage. That's different from the congressional maps where there was a big change in one of the five seats. Now, you had previously reported on the lack of uncontested races in the legislature. Does the new map after redistricting, uh, does that change that? Yeah, so that's another thing that didn't seem to really change that much. Um, like you said, I reported last year about the number of uncontested races um, before the general election in 2020. About 60% of the races were already decided. Um, that's because there wasn't a Republican running in some cases. There wasn't a Democrat running in other cases. Um, you know, that was that ranking was among the worst in the nation. Some states had 
um, just 20% of legislations that were not competitive. Um, but this is a, a growing problem here in Oklahoma. It's been increasing over the years. Um, and this map doesn't seem to really help that very much. Um, there's just five districts in the Senate that are considered competitive now. There was um, four before, and just 14 of the House seats are competitive of the 101 seats, and that does not change with the new maps. So are either uh, of the two major parties getting an advantage uh, with the new maps, and how's that likely to play out in 2022? Yeah, so the Republican supermajority in the House and Senate doesn't look to be threatened anytime soon. Um, these maps won't really change the political calculus too much. Um, one thing to watch, though, is how many Democrats can get elected. This is important because Republicans may need some help passing revenue-raising bills that happened a few years ago. Or if um, you know a Democrat gets elected um, as governor in 22, we have Joy Hoffmeister running. Um, you know, the two-thirds to override a veto is going to be a critical um, number. So even though that Republicans are pretty much guaranteed to keep control, the number of seats that Democrats hold um, will certainly be something to watch next year. Well, Oklahoma clearly is still very much a conservative state politically with many more uh, registered Republicans than Democrats. Why is it bad that there are so many non-competitive districts, and what can be done about that moving forward? Yeah, it's, it's a complicated problem. Um, you know, first off, it's not great for voters. You know, I ran the numbers, and there's a number of districts that have not had a general election race um, in terms of their deciding their legislators in about six or eight years. Um, you know, meanwhile, you know, there's a lot of um, – you know, debate of whether if these races are contested, is it going to lead to more extreme candidates? If you only have Republicans running for a seat, it's more likely that the more right-wing um, candidate will win, save with Democrats. Um, you know, if there's primary, more the more left-leaning um, lawmaker will have the edge. Um, you know, changing this, it's, it's hard to do because, you know, these districts are going to be set for the next 10 years, you know, it's up to the party leaders to recruit candidates on both the Republican and the Democratic side. So we'll be seeing if they can step up any of their efforts there. What are some of the the more competitive districts? I know you said there aren't very many, but uh, where are those? And are there some races that we might want to keep an eye on next year? Yeah, so the a lot of the districts in the urban areas are, are some of the more closer ones. Um, you know, we saw the rural-urban divide grow even more last election cycle with um, Republicans winning pretty much every rural seat in the House and almost every seat in the Senate. Um, so, you know, some of the races I'll be watching next year are some of the races that are based in and around Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Um, some of them in Oklahoma City, um, Senator Kurtz District, Senator Brooks District, and Senator Floyd Districts, they're all Democrats here in Oklahoma City, and, um, you know, they'll all be in close matches, um, you know, depending on who decides to run in 2022. Um, in the House, we're also looking at more urban areas. Um, Dennis Denise Brewer's uh, seat in Tulsa, Nikki Dolan's seat in Oklahoma City, those are both even more close than they were before. Okay. 
Uh, thanks, Trevor. Be sure to try and sign up for uh, Trevor's Capital Watch newsletter at OklahomaWatch.org. Oklahoma Watch is a nonprofit organization specializing in investigative journalism. You can find us on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. We'd like you to know that we're a 501c3, and in order to bring you consistent, investigative, nonpartisan journalism throughout Oklahoma, we rely on donors like you. During the months of November and December, we participate in a program called Newsmatch, where a couple of large public foundations match every single dollar that readers and listeners like you contribute to our organization. If you value the news that we provide, you can go to oklahomawatch.org, go to our donation page, and every dollar that you're able to donate will be matched by the Newsmatch program from now through the end of the year. Thanks for listening.